you last time I've been wanting to do a series of studies in 2 Corinthians for a long time, over 10 years. And, and I was telling somebody, a friend yesterday, that, you know, it, I think it's, it's maybe even exceeding the book of Romans. And that's, that's a big thing for me because Romans is such a powerful book. But 2 Corinthians, the principles that are here, it was probably written about a year before Romans. And so we see that there are a lot of parallels in the mind of the Apostle Paul. But we've seen, beginning in chapter 2, verse 14, that we are part of, we who are born-again Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus, are part of a victory march. That's how we need to see our Christian life. It's a Christian life that includes success if we stay in the Lord. We stay in fellowship with him in obedience to his word in allowing his spirit to guide us. We're assured of success. That's what Paul said in 2.14. He always leads us forth in triumph. So we've seen already that in verses 14 to 16 of chapter 2, just to rehearse, there's a procession. We're using that word to kind of think about. It's a procession from the place of new birth onto glory. We're going to see him. That's where we, we, we begin with living by faith, and eventually we're going to be living by sight. We're going to see him. That's what Paul is painting, this picture that we saw in 2.17 to 3.6, that God has made provision, that we're ministers of the new covenant, not the old covenant. The old covenant is a ministry of condemnation, right? The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And so our sufficiency for this ministry is in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to do it. The Old Covenant didn't have any provision for the Holy Spirit to enable the people to keep Torah. They couldn't keep Torah. That's what the whole record of the Old Testament is, right? Failure after failure. Even when we get to Isaiah 36 to 39, those last four chapters in that first segment of Isaiah, and we see King Hezekiah, and we think, oh, now here's the one. There were many victories for King Hezekiah, and then it ends in failure again when he brings the Babylonian ambassadors in and shows them all his wealth, and they would come for that wealth within a hundred years. It, he fell to pride. But for us who have the provision of the Spirit, there's no need for that. There's no reason to fall to pride. And when pride comes in, we can judge it quickly, right? And set it aside. And Paul's been telling us that. And then we saw in 3, 7 to 4, 6, there's a process of transformation. That's another indication of victory and assurance of victory, right? That because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, the provision of the Spirit, we can be involved in this process of transformation. Maybe thinking of the word sanctification, right? That the, that the Lord is conforming us from one glory to another into His image. How often? Daily, day by day. Isn't that wonderful? When we wake up in the morning, we need to be thinking about, Lord, what are you going to do to teach me today to conform me one step further into your image today? Because Paul said it's day by day, it's daily. He says it all the way through this section, doesn't he? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of grace, he says. In chapter 6. And so we see that there's a process that we're involved in. And then we saw in 4, 7 to 5, 10, there's a perspective on sufferings. Everybody in this world suffers. Amen? It's not just Christians who suffer. Unbelievers suffer too. 
But our perspective on suffering is different than the unbeliever, isn't it? That's what's different. Our perspective is we recognize that God is going to use the sufferings that he allows to come into our lives. He's going to use them for our good. And as an opportunity for growth in ministry, see? The dying of the Lord Jesus, we carry that about in our bodies. He said that in order that the life of the Lord Jesus might be more manifested. We're dying more and more to self, living more and more to God. That's the picture, right? Same thing he tells us in Romans chapter 6. So the perspective on sufferings. And then now we want to move in chapter 5, verses 11 to 21, the second half of chapter 5, to the purpose of ministry. The purpose is, in one word, reconciliation. Reconciliation. It's a great segment. So let's begin our reading. Verse 11 of chapter 5. Knowing, therefore, the terror or the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences, Paul says to these Corinthians. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I think this is kind of the whole thrust. Everything's been moving in this passage to this point. The purpose in ministry. Well, I would divide it up into three sections. Verses 11 to 15. The motive for ministry. In verses 16 to 19. The message in our ministry. And then verses 20 to 21. The ministry itself. Just in a, in a short word or two to think about it. The motive for ministry is the love of Christ. Isn't it? Yes. It's the love of Christ. The love of Christ for us and the love of Christ for everybody else. 
the message is we offer a new creation through the gospel. And so there's hope for everyone. Whatever your past, whatever the things that shackled you before, whatever terrible sins you might be involved in, there is hope for you that you can be made a new creation in Christ right now, today, this morning. Amen? That's why it's called good news, the gospel. And then the ministry of it, 20 to 21, he, has, he is pleading through us. You see that in the middle of verse 20? He's imploring God is. Other people, lost people, through us. That's the ministry of reconciliation that all of us can participate in if we're born again Christians and children of God. Amen? Amen. It's not just for the clergy. There's no clergy in the Bible, right? It's for all his sons and daughters and all of us have a part to play. And so we don't exalt one person over another. We don't elevate anybody. We all are important in that. And we all need to be encouraged in that. And we all need to seek opportunities to do it. Grant Farrar was, was challenging us this uh, summer over in, in Lafayette. He was telling us, five people this week, share the gospel with five people. Think, of the, Ask the Lord to open the door for you to just, just five people. <laughs> he realized sometimes it's hard just to do that. But it's a prayerful attitude. See, it's an openness to being available to the Lord and then to being discerning where the opportunities might be, who it might be with. It's exciting. It's an adventure, isn't it, the Christian life? When we begin to realize what God has invited us to do with him, workers together, as he'll say in chapter 6, verse 1, workers together with God in bringing people from death to life, And that's where we'll move into that last section in 6, 1 to 7, 4, the privilege of it. It is an enormous privilege not only to be in his family, as he'll talk about, and be temples of the Holy Spirit, but to participate with the Lord in this great work. But let's think about it. Where he begins in verse 11, knowing therefore, my version, the New King James says, the terror of the Lord. It's interesting, Fabos, that, that word is generally translated fear. Every other place in the New Testament it's used. I don't know why they chose to use terror here. But it, it has the, the element of reverential awe of the Lord. Really, the terror element for us who are believers has been taken away by the Lord's taking our judgment upon himself on the cross. But why does he begin there? Because he's transitioning from 5, 1 through 10, where he talks about the fact that we all are going to eventually be with the Lord. And when we're with him at the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to be assessed. There's going to be an assessment of what we've done in our bodies, whether it be good or bad, right? And, and that's sobering, isn't it? Now, what that tells us is that we ought to be assessing it now. You realize that there is no reason why all anything that we could have done wrong it could all be judged by us now. We could have a clean slate when we go to be with him. That should be our goal. Because he tells us how to be made clean, right? In 1 John 1, 9. 
He wants to do that, but we have a role in that too. And so Paul says in this idea of I'm going to face the Lord and he's my savior, but he's also going to assess what I did for him as a servant in this life. He says, knowing that, we persuade men. So when we recognize that the Lord is a just judge and that there's a judgment coming for all people, we're going to be wanting to persuade men of that judgment to come, aren't we? I remember some of you knew, uh, I think Sister Alice knew Ruth Rubeson. Some of you may have known her, but her dad, in the later years of his life, he used to go down to West Palm downtown and, and Boca and different places with a sandwich board sign and just hand out tracts, didn't say a word. I've got a picture of him doing it. Somebody took a picture of him, and I got a picture of him, and he, just, he'd just be, he wouldn't even look him in the eye. He would just look down and just hand out a tract. And on the, on the sandwich board it said, are you going to heaven or hell? I mean, he didn't hide it, what he was doing. He, he wasn't being crafty. Like Paul says, we're, we're honest. We're not deceitful, right? As we give out the gospel. And Ruth asked him why he had such an impelling, compelling desire to do this. What motivated him to do this? And I asked her years, I said, what, what was it that caused him? She said, because he told me the Lord in his scriptures had given him a keen sense of how bad hell was and he didn't want anybody to go there. Do you have that kind of sense about hell? Do I? It's sobering, isn't it? It's a real place. And it's a real bad place. Thank you, Romeo. That's right. It's a bad place. Very bad place. And people are going to be there for how long? Forever. Forever, see. I was sharing the gospel with, with someone just a few weeks ago. And this isn't the response we like to get. But this particular soul had been involved in well just a lot of sin in his life and drug addictions alcohol addiction and a lot of other things and he was later in years and sharing the gospel with him and he understood that there the message was for him that he could have and I just couldn't believe his answer was I'm too bad. He can't save me. I'm too far gone. And the Bible says they love their sin. And people can get to a stage where they're so in love with their sin that they won't leave their sin for Christ. They won't turn to Christ. Now Christ has the power to deliver from all addictions. All forms of bondage. Do you believe that? Yes. I believe that. He said he talked about the power of God in chapter 4, didn't he? I believe, I believe he can do that. But that's, a, that's by faith, isn't it? And that person has to exercise that kind of faith. This whole issue that he's dealing with here in the second half of chapter 5 of reconciliation is, is a reconciliation. It's rec, you know, reconciliation always involves two parties, right? And they're at enmity with each other. They're not talking. Bob and I were talking to a brother 
to, or to a man. He's not a brother yet, but we've been witnessing to him on Friday night. And he said, there's somebody that he's offended him, and I'm not talking to him. I haven't talked to him since June. Not talking to him. And so we got to talk to him a little bit about it. And then later on he was saying, you know what, he might show up tonight, and maybe I should go, go talk to him. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. And so reconciliation it's a great word, katalasso. I like, that's, a, that's a Greek word I can say. And I, it's such a great truth. It's, it's the last word in the sentence in 5.11 of Romans, right? Who has given to it, for whom we've received the reconciliation. Hey, katalasso, the reconciliation. To be reconciled, to be at peace with God. Are you at peace with God this morning? Yes. Do you know it? If you're at peace with God, you know it. It, is, it isn't something that you might know or you like, hope I, well, I hope I am. I, no, if you are in peace with God, you know it. It's an experience, isn't it? The recon to be reconciled where well, we formerly were at enmity, Romans 8, 5 to 7, right? For what the law could not do in that we were weak through the flesh, God did by sending his son. And when we receive him, we are reconciled to God. For how long? Till we sin again? No, forever, right? That's why it's so wonderful. The reconciliation is so wonderful. It's so important. But it's interesting to me, you know, sometimes when I hear people talk about their motivation for why they give the gospel, it's interesting to me. You know what his, Paul's motive was? In verse 14, he tells us, for the love of Christ compels us. Now, isn't it fascinating that he doesn't, up in verse 11, he doesn't say it's the terror of the Lord that compels me. No, he says, but, but, but. The love of Christ is what compels him, see? Knowing the terror of the Lord, but the terror of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, isn't what compels him to do it. I've sometimes heard people, evangelists, say well, it's the terror of the Lord that compels. No, no. Paul says, I know about the terror of the Lord, but it's the love of Christ that compels. And beloved... Whoever you're sharing the gospel with, they'll recognize whether you're giving them the love of Christ or the fear of the Lord. There's a whole movement in midsection of this country, and they call it FOL, the fear of the Lord. That's their acronym for it, right? And, and they're writing books about it, you know, and, and that so many in the church have lost the fear of the Lord. And maybe that's partly true. I don't know. I don't. I can't see people's hearts. I'm not going to assess that in their lives. I think we're doing pretty good here in the fear of the Lord. At least that's what I'm observing. But, but I do observe there's a lot of lack of the love of Christ. That I do see. Acts chapter 2 says, It was their love for one another that drew the lost people to the church. The Lord says they'll, they'll know you're Christians by your love for one another in John 13, the upper room, doesn't he? And the love of Christ is a lot more difficult, isn't it, to really come into because we, in our old nature, hatred is such a part of our old nature, see? Remember how he puts it in Titus chapter 3? Hateful and hating one another. That's bad. <laughs> Not only are we hateful in our own selves, and we hate others too. That's our old nature. That's who we are in Adam. That's what sin brought into us. And it still creeps in in much of our lives. The love of Christ, that only comes from spending time with the Lord, beloved, in his word. 
And that's one way when I see a, a professing Christian that doesn't exhibit love consistently, I say, how often are you in the word? Because you already answered for me just by your, your attitude and your actions. If you're judgmental and critical and hateful, you're not in the word. You maybe, maybe don't even know the Lord Jesus because God is love, isn't he? And love forgives. Love forbears with frailty and weaknesses. You know, in fact, love delights to forgive. Do you delight to forgive when somebody offends you? Or do you kind of just grudgingly say, well, I'll forgive them, but not happy about it? See? Paul understood, and you read five times in the New Testament, his testimony is recorded, isn't it? Five times. It's like the Holy Spirit, the Lord is saying, take a look at this one. And Paul tells us he was the extreme case, right? The chief of sinners. He said, God has already shown mercy to the chief of sinners. If he's shown mercy to the chief of sinners, he can show mercy to anyone. And you look at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, if I was a Christian in the first century, before Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, I wouldn't have wanted to meet him. How about you? I wouldn't have wanted to meet him because he would have taken a hold of you and me and dragged us off to put us in prison or worse, right? Or worse because he didn't know the Lord. But on the road to Damascus, he saw the glorified Lord and it changed him. And he realized how much God loved him. And that changed him. And he's going to talk about in chapter 6 all kinds of things he suffered. You say, well, why did he do that? Because he knew how much Christ loved him, and he loved Christ back. That's what it's about, see. The love of Christ motivating, compelling us. And when we see how much Christ died, how much he loved lost sinners, we'll want to tell them about it too. He's not willing that some should perish. Is that what it says? He's not willing that any should perish. And that some should come to repentance. No, that all should come to repentance, right? That's God's heart. The story of the prodigal son. That may, in, in one sense, may be a picture of the Apostle Paul himself. And God waiting for him, longing to receive him back, but waiting because in reconciliation it takes two parties to make reconciliation work, right? I can remember talking to a brother many years ago, and you say, I, this one brother, I, I want to be reconciled to him, and, and I just can't. I said, yeah, but you can forgive him. Forgiveness you can do. And that will restore your relationship with the Lord, right? Your vertical relationship. If you don't forgive, the Lord tells us in Matthew 6, and I won't forgive your trespasses either. You'll be out of fellowship with me. You won't lose your salvation, but you'll be out of fellowship with me. So forgiveness we need to do. But reconciliation is different, right? Because the other person has to want to reconcile. That's how it works in the legal system too, right, Joe? I mean, you have to bring two parties together. There are an animosity. They have to both want to come together. And sometimes there's a mediator that brings them together, right? God has a mediator with a capital M. 
His name is Jesus Christ. He's the only mediator between God and man. He's the reconciler with the capital R. And he wants us to be part of this message and ministry of reconciling, bringing more people. Why? He tells us in chapter 4 that thanksgiving may abound to the glory of God at the end of verse 15. That thanksgiving may abound to the glory of God. See? When more people come to the Lord, thanksgiving abounds to the glory of God. The Lord says that over one sinner who repents, one sinner, angels in heaven do what? Take a nap? No, they rejoice over one sinner who repents. We had that happen this week. One sinner repents and, and there's joy in heaven. Is there joy in your heart when one sinner repents? Is there joy in my heart? Or are we so involved in the world and the world system that we don't have that sensitivity? We become desensitized to that. See, that's what it's about. It's the same attitude we see there in the father in the story of the prodigal son. So what Paul's bringing out in verse 12, and really this idea of, of commendation, again, contrasting himself with the antagonist, the false apostles, that all the way through 2 Corinthians, he's exposing them in their methodology. They call themselves the super apostles. We're the super ones, right? That's in chapter 11. We're the super apostles. Paul says, I'm not inferior to any of those so-called super apostles. And what their technique was, we don't know in detail. They had these letters of commendation. Maybe they, they said they got them from the apostle Peter. You know, and Peter was the leader of the apostolic band. And so they said they were sent from him because we know from 1 Corinthians, there was a group of them that said, we're of Peter, right? We're of Cephas. And then another one, well, we're of Paul. And they had these different divisions, followers of men, see? Paul says, don't just look at outward appearance. It's a matter of the heart. It's what's on the inside. See, the world looks at outward appearance, and we can too. That's why a super charismatic, I don't mean charismatic theologically, I mean charismatic charisma and personality, a super charismatic individual with, with a hair slicked back and a $500 suit, or I guess they have to be $800 suits now because of the prices of things, and, and making a big outward display impresses a lot of people. But what about the heart? See, what's on the inside? That's what Paul's going to bring. That's what the gospel deals with, right? A new heart. And that's what the second section here with the new creation, beginning in verse 16. From now on, we don't regard people according to outward appearance, according to the flesh. We don't even regard the Lord that way. Yes, he walked around here. We knew him that way, but not anymore. He's exalted in heaven now. So if anyone is in Christ, because Christ is exalted, if anyone is in him, where are they positionally? In heaven, with him, seated with him in the heavenlies, right? And the old things have passed away. All things have become kainos, new. I love that. The thing is, sometimes it's hard to let go of the old things, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to let go of the old things. And that's part of the whole ministry of sanctification that the Holy Spirit is doing in us day by day, right? But we've got to, we've got to put it away. 
right? We've got to render it ineffective and useless and live in the new life. This is a daily decision, a multitude of decisions in every day, isn't it? But that's the challenge. You are a new creation if you're born again. No question. But are you living in the new creation? That's the challenge to us, right? That's the responsibility we have. And so he says, all things are of God, verse 18, who has reconciled us to himself. Who took the initiative? God did. God took the initiative to reconcile us to himself. We were out of sorts with him. We were not in peace. We were in enmity. Romans chapter 5 gives four different categories. We were ungodly, sinners, enemies of God, couldn't save ourselves, helpless. And while we were in that state, Christ died for us, right? Romans 5.8. And so if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. But then he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. So now we can participate in this great reconciling work of God, not imputing their trespasses to them. Are you thankful for that? I am. He's not imputing my trespasses to me. And if you're born again, he's not imputing your trespasses to you anymore. Why? Because you have a substitute. The whole issue of substitutionary atonement goes back to the Garden of Eden with the animal skins, continues with Abel and the lamb sacrifice that he knew about, Hebrews 11, and, and then the Passover lamb, and then the temple and the tabernacle, the, the animal sacrifice, the whole idea of substitutionary atonement all the way through the Old Testament, pointing to Christ, according to Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer never took away one sin, according to the writer of Hebrews, right? It was just a covering. That's what the atonement means, kafar. Just a covering until Christ died on the cross. And then it was made effective. Wow. Not imputing their trespasses to him. And now then, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now Paul primarily has in mind himself and his apostle band, the group of them, right? But there's a sense in which all believers are ambassadors for Christ. Now, what does an ambassador do? They represent the king in his absence, right? They're in a foreign land, and they're representing the king in his absence. Christ is in heaven at the Father's right hand. We, he's a king, too. And we are here on earth, as his representatives. That's what an ambassador is. We carry on his likeness. We're concerned about his things. Our whole life is focused now as a new creation on his things instead of our things. Instead of self. We used to live for self. Now we live for him. It's a whole shift of worldview, a whole different world outlook, right? And our, we look on lost people, and instead of sitting there and judging them and saying and thinking to ourselves, I wish I could sin like they are and getting away with it like that, instead of thinking like that when we were lost, now we realize, maybe with a tear or two, but for the grace of God, that goes me. And I need to be praying for them and maybe witnessing to them. 
and certainly living the gospel before them, the character and conduct of the Lord Jesus himself. And it leads Paul to that great statement in verse 21. I could have preached verse 21 by itself. It, it really is a marvelous, richly theological statement. For he made, God made him who knew no sin. Who's the him there? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews will say he's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. In chapter 7 of Hebrews, right? And that's why he can be our substitute. That's why, as the young people were saying here earlier, our consciences can be cleared from guilt because if there was one sin in him, then we couldn't be, our consciences would bother us. Well, you know, I hope I'm going to be saved, but I'm not sure. And if you're trusting in yourself, my, you, you're not going to have any peace. I grew up in a religion like that where you trusted in yourself. You went to the priest and confessed it, and you hoped that would cover it, but you never had any assurance of forgiveness of sins. What a joy to know that the Lord Jesus, but God did something here. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now, there have been some things taught about that section of the verse that come close to blasphemy, right? And so we want to be careful how we handle it. I heard one brother get up years ago at the Lord's Supper and say, God made him sin from the head of his, crown of his head to the toe, his toes. He was sin, made it, made it like a sinner. He was not made a sinner. The Hebrews verse tells us that, right? Separate from sin. He was never made a sinner, and he wasn't made sin in the sense of our sin being put into him. He couldn't be. He's holy. What's the word he used just a couple verses earlier in verse 19? Imputed. See, in all of these verses, you've got to see in their context together, our sins were imputed to him in God's reckoned. They were reckoned as judged in that death on the cross. You say, well, how can Christ's suffering and dying for six hours on the cross cover all my sins or the sins of the whole world? Because God says that they cover them. That's why. I'm relying on his word. I can't understand it either in my mind. It seems like, you know, this compared to eternity and, and, the, and the weight of my sins and my sins alone, let alone mine and yours. But God says he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. God is satisfied with that death. That's what the word propitiation means. He's satisfied. Are you? Am I? Or are you still trying to add something to Christ's death to make sure? That Christ's death is effective for those who trust in him. It's offered to everyone. That's where it says he died for all. It's offered to everyone. It's effective for those who are trusting in him. That's why we can offer the gospel to everyone. But not everybody receives it, do they? At least that's been my experience. I hope that changes. The second half of the verse then, you see there's a transfer, there's an exchange here. Some have called it the blessed exchange or the blessed transfer. He took our sins, he gave us his righteousness. 
If he just took the judgment for my sins, that would be enough. I'd be thrilled with just that. And he did. But then not only that, he imputes his righteousness to me. That's why I know I'll never see the judgment of God. Because the righteousness of God has already been given to me as a free gift, grace. And that's why I can be bold about it like I am with you right now. I don't have to cower and wonder if lightning's going to strike me because I know. And there was lightning Monday night, right, Chris? Well, we had lightning all over the place. It was spectacular. But we don't have to worry about that. The Lord took it for us. And we can be bold in our access to God through faith by the Holy Spirit. And when we share the gospel, we can be confident that God is working through us. I shared it with some of the young people Friday night. It looked like not many of them knew it. He paid a debt he didn't owe. That's the first half of the verse. He paid a debt. He didn't owe that debt, but he paid it anyway. I owed a debt I couldn't pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. Have you ever heard that? I think it was a camp song. It was when I was in camp. That was a long time ago. I needed someone to wash my sins away, but he's done that. Amazing grace. Beloved, Christ offers reconciliation to you this morning. Be reconciled to God is the message, right? If you're here this morning and Maybe you've been going to church. I heard the story not too long ago in Unshackled of a man who was brought up in a Christian family and he went to church, but he, he just went because his parents made him go, right? And then as soon as he got out of his parents' household, man, he, he said, uh, who needs that church stuff? And he got into gambling, and that caused an addiction there that ruined his family. It ruined his bit. He lost his job. He lost his family. Wife left him with the kids. And then somebody at work, when he finally got a job, he was out for several years, told him about God's love for him. And he couldn't believe it. God still loved him. He couldn't believe it. He'd been out away, away from church for so long. I'm not encouraging you and I to stop going to church and to test God, right? Because you don't test God like that. But if we know people like that, and you probably do, I do, is there hope for them to be saved? Yeah. In the gospel there is. Our message, be reconciled to God. You have a responsibility in that, right? God's done everything necessary for you. We can tell them God has done everything necessary for you to be reconciled. So what have you done with it? May God help us. And we'll see tonight the vessels he uses for that we need to be pure vessels, right? And the privilege that's ours as we live for him and share that gospel. So let's thank the Lord together. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word and the message of reconciliation, being made at peace with God, a holy, righteous God. You didn't sacrifice your holiness and righteousness not one bit. But yet in love you took our sins upon the body of your son upon the tree and how that worked out in your mind we don't know the details 
We put all of these scriptures together, our Lord, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and yet willingly taking that judgment for us. That's love. May we respond to that love with love back to you. That's the only motivation that will compel us to live the Christian life consistently. Love for you because of your love for us. Thank you, O Lord, for your word and for the hope it gives to us. If there's someone here this morning who doesn't know Christ as Savior, may they seriously consider what the message is telling them, the word of the scriptures. May they realize that they can turn to Christ right now and be saved from the judgment to come. For us who know you as Savior, Lord, may we live in a way that shows it and be rejoicing daily and growing in you, living unto your grace and goodness. We give you thanks now. Go with us as we travel. We pray in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.